Hello and welcome to the Anchor Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with our Wednesday evening Bible studies here in this podcast. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. Tonight, I probably will finish these last three verses. They're pretty easy. What we have done, I I, want to refresh our minds a little bit since we started last year. We went through every verse that Calvinists have used and we unpacked it. So if you listen to this whole series, then you will know how to deal with every verse that they take out of context. Which is that's the way you want to argue with a Calvinist. You do not want to argue about the Institutes, the Doctrines of Grace, Calvin, Dwingley, all these other guys. You want to just stick with the Scriptures. Don't get into philosophical debates. Don't get into all these other things. Just stick with the Scriptures. And that's why we just did that. So that way you can understand that when passages are taken out of context, you realize what they're doing, how they're doing it. So these will be the remaining passages that we'll deal with. So... The last three verses on that back of the page, Philippians 1.6, Jude 1.24-25, and 1 John 2.19 we'll tackle tonight. Here's the passage. It's on the screen for you if you want to look at the screen or you can hand out or whatever. It says, I am sure of this, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. How is it typically mistranslated by Calvinists? Typically, the good work they believe is salvation. That he who began a good work in you, the good work in their interpretation, in disregard to the context, they believe it means salvation. And in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That means in the Calvinism, you will persevere all the way to the end. He will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. They don't believe in the rapture. Some Calvinists do, but um, will complete it. Will You will complete your salvation at the day of Jesus Christ. So that means embedded in that is perseverance. He will, he, he will do it. Not you. He will do it. Okay. So then most of the time you probably heard it translated that the good work in you is referring to salvation. And unfortunately, most people just take it on face value, but you have to read Philippians and understand what is the good work that Paul is referring to. And what you'll see is, It's a different subject. So let me read the context. It's sort of like verse 3 of Philippians chapter 1. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy. Verse 5. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. Now, with that being said, the key phrase is that you are partakers with me or partners with me, Paul is saying. That's the overall context of what? Of this grace. 
Is this talking about salvation? Well, in verse 5, it indicates your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. So, the overall context is not talking or discussing salvation. The overall context is discussing the Philippians' partnership with the Apostle Paul in his endeavor. Okay? So you read through the context of that. Well, what what does that mean? Well, obviously, Christ is the agent of this particular good work. But the good work is defined by the context. And the context is not talking about salvation. The good work that Paul is talking about, that Christ activated in them, is simply this. It's the Philippians' help of the Apostle Paul. The good work is not referring to salvation. It is referring to the first day they started partnering with the Apostle Paul's ministry endeavors. And that good work that Christ started in them to get them to help the Apostle Paul, because he's in jail at this point in time, and they're helping him and helping him and helping him, Christ will see it to the very end. This good work is the partnership with the Apostle Paul, and will complete it until the day of Christ. So, understand the implications of the work of Paul. The work of Paul... Is with us today, is it not? Anybody that aided the Apostle Paul, aided the work of Paul, which was he's, he was an apostle to the Gentiles, he wrote most of the New Testament, he, in this dispensation of the church age, is the leader. He is the one that the church looks to for this, the guidance and instruction. Christ is the foundation, no doubt about that, he is the one who that started the church, but Paul is the one who gives us the instruction of how to function in the church. Hence, just like Moses is the leader of that dispensation of the Mosaic period, Abraham is the leader of the patriarchal period, Paul is the leader in the church dispensation age. Messiah is the instructor in the Messianic age. Does that make sense? Okay. Every dispensation has an instructor. The Apostle Paul is this instructor's dispensation. Even though Christ started the church, his foundation, all that stuff, Christ is the, uh, sorry, Paul is the one who gives us information. Okay, therefore, the work of Paul is the work of the church. Okay? So, the Philippians in aiding the Apostle Paul and I'm, I'm not saying this to the exclusion of the other apostles. They're all on board on this, okay? But it is the Apostle Paul that really stretched out the church to the Gentiles, right? And spread it. They participate in that. And that still affects us today. And the continuing effects of the Apostle Paul will go all the way to the day of Christ Jesus, which would be the rapture. That's how they participated in it. So, he who has begun the good work, a good work, a good work referring to the partnership with the Apostle Paul, in you will complete it until the day of the rapture. 
That totally makes sense. The work Paul did will continue to reverberate throughout history the last 2,000 years until the rapture, until the church is called home. Any questions on that? Does that make kind of sense? So all of a sudden, again, we must ask the same question, and I'm going to keep throwing it. Why do they ignore the context? The context is not discussing salvation. It is discussing partnership with the Apostle Paul. Tell me why. Yes, to build an argument, to make a pretext for perseverance of the saints in this in this regard. Now, I know you have heard this. Pastors have quoted. In fact, pastors unknowingly quote this and think it refers to salvation because they're just parroting what they've heard. But if they would just study the context, it will reveal that he's not talking about salvation. The bulk of the information in the New Testament, and I'm going to say this again, is discipleship-oriented. Whether you're in James, whether you're in Philippians, whether you're in whatever, Hebrews, what book is strictly for salvation in the New Testament? Now, all of it edifies, right? Everything. But what? there's one book that claims to be for evangelizing the unsaved. And what book is that? John. John specifically says that these things are written so that you may know you have eternal life or how to have eternal life. He says that in the in uh, what chapter 21 or 22, somewhere in that neighborhood. He gives you the whole purpose of the book. That's why if you want an unbeliever to read something, you want to read uh, Apostle John's work because that's a work written to unbelievers. That's why it's structured the way it is. That's why it starts out with saying that Jesus is God. Notice that Matthew doesn't start out that way. What does Matthew and Luke start out with? Genealogies. Mark doesn't have a genealogy, but Mark's emphasis is on the servanthood of the Messiah. Matthew's on the kingship of the Messiah. Luke is on the perfect man. But all those three Gospels are written for discipleship purposes. Gospel of John is written for evangelism purposes. Just read them. Read them. Read in Matthew how many times he talks about salvation. That's my challenge. I want you to go through the Gospel of Matthew and see how many times he talks about salvation versus discipleship. Most of the passages in Matthew are not referring to salvation. They're referring to discipleship. No, not necessarily. First John is not the test of salvation. First John is the test of fellowship, the test of discipleship. Yes, does John mention that in chapter 5? Yes, of course, and he'll mention that. But the overall context, obviously, is written to believers, not unbelievers. So like chapter 1, if you read chapter 1 of First John, he states the overarching idea. He says, um, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, get ready, that your joy may be full. It doesn't say that you may be saved. 
So right there, the context is set by John. He's saying that so we can not only have fellowship with one another, that's why he'll talk about hating your brother and stuff like that, but that you can have fellowship with the Father and the Son. So what's the issue? Fellowship. Fellowship. So the Calvinists take it and say, oh, no, John's about whether or not you're saved. I'm sorry, he doesn't talk about that. He starts the whole letter off with fellowship, and and so if you go through there, because, oh my goodness, if you would read John in the terms of salvation, you're going to come up and uh, uh, like every Calvinist does and say, I'm not saved. That's what you would end up if you read First John. You would say, I, I just, I'm a liar. It says, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. Well, that's me. So I'm a liar. I'm not saved. Is that what he's saying? No, no, he's talking about the believer who's in willful disobedience and says, I'm in fellowship with God. No, you're not. You cannot claim fellowship if you're in disobedience. That's his point, right? It's not doubting your salvation. It's doubting your discipleship, doubting your fellowship. John's gospel? Yes. Well, repentance is not used, I don't think, in in, uh, John. I don't think you'll find a passage about repent. Uh, repentance is typically in Matthew and it has to do with Israel to repent. In um, fact, what you start realizing is the word repentance is not any in, in involved in any salvation passages. Uh, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Born again does not involve repentance. Yes, God's judgment is talked about, and he talks about like if you basically don't get saved, you're going to be condemned. The judgment is going to fall on you. So that's why in John, he's talking about eternal judgment. Whereas if you go into other passages in other books, the judgment is referring to physical or temporal judgment coming upon um, believers. So that's why it's important to know the context. The Gospel of John is referring to eternal life and eternal condemnation. But let's say you jump into the book of James the punishment there has nothing to do with loss of eternal life or not getting eternal life. It has to do with punishment, physical punishment by physical death. That's what the writer of Hebrews is warning about. The five warnings in Hebrews is warning believers that if you do fall away, you can expect the same thing to happen to you as what happened to Kadesh Barnea that refused to go into the promised land and take the promised land. They all were punished by physically dying in the wilderness after 40 years. So the, he says, and then that's why the writer of Hebrews will say, how much more if you do this and you have this kind of information now about Christ and you do this, your punishment's going to be worse. Talking about physical punishment. Basically, he's, he's threatening them with death. You're going to die or an early death. Um, anyway, okay, let's move on then. Unless there's any more questions, we're all good there with Philippians. Okay, let's move to Jude one twenty four through 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceedingly joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty. Okay, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. So go back to the first one. So the Calvinist is going to interpret this that, look, a believer cannot stumble. They don't believe what we believe as far as eternal security. They believe in perseverance of the saints. And so this is why they have such a hard time 
with believers who get caught up in the sin, even believers who apostatize and accept false doctrine. They're saying, look, this passage proves he will keep you from stumbling. Now, wait a second. Does this passage say he will keep you from stumbling? He is able. Let's see how easy that is. All you have to do is read the details. It doesn't say that he will keep you 100% from stumbling. He is able to do this. How is God able to do this? What tools does he give you to prevent you from stumbling and to present you faultless if you do this? Well, again, context is everything. So if you look in Jude and you read the context, it can start in verse like 17, for instance, and I'll read it. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember their words. Okay, their words are going to have an effect on them. How? How they told you that there were would be mockers in the last times who would walk according, accordingly to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions not having the Spirit. Okay, so we're, we're warned about these types of people. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. There, my friends, is what? you're to do to keep from stumbling. This is what the apostles told them to do to avoid stumbling. If you do those certain things, then he is able to keep you from stumbling. So, it's not the way the Calvinists believe when they say, God will keep you from stumbling. No, he is able to keep you from stumbling through his word if what? You do those things. If you obey those particular things, then you won't stumble. That's how he's able to keep you. Notice the balance of free will in this passage. How is the balance of free will kept? God says, do it my way and you won't fall, but do it your way and you will. But I can keep you from stumbling, but I'm not going to force you and prevent you from stumbling. I'm going to say, follow my word and it'll prevent, uh, it'll prevent it, but you have the freedom to not follow it. You see how that works? God can force you to not stumble, but then what would happen if he forced you not to stumble? What would happen to you? There's no free will. Calvinists say that's why the warnings of uh, like Hebrews are just hypotheticals. Because no believer would fall. No believer would apostatize. No believer would get themselves in false doctrine. No believer would get themselves like the first Corinthian guy in sin and sexual immorality. No, 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 because he's able to keep you from stumbling if you're saved. You see how that's misapplied? So guess what? This is why we've talked about this. When someone goes to counseling to a Calvinist and they're all messed up or they're believing wrong, what does the Calvinist say? You're not safe because that verse right there says, oh, you know, you know, you, you wouldn't stumble if you were a believer. You would never stumble if you're a believer. That's bad. I'm telling you what, that right there, misinterpreting that passage is spiritual abuse. To say to a believer, hey, Daryl, you'll never stumble. And Daryl's like, what are you talking about, man? 
Because we all stumble. We all stumble in our walk with the Lord. So then a Calvinist is going to beat me over the head saying, well, bless God, I don't stumble and you shouldn't either. What? And you're going to have those, those pastors are, they're so elite. They're so, they're so godly, aren't they? They remind me of the Pharisees. So the advice we would give, even you would give to another believer that comes to you and say, man, I'm struggling. Man, am I saved? No, it's not. Yeah, you're saved. It's not about your salvation. It's you're not following in obedience. And that's why you're stumbling. You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. That's why you're falling. Simple. Why would they intentionally mess that up? Chaps my hide. <sighs> so frustrated with them. First John 2.19. The person that's stumbling is... Well, what would cause stumbling is it's either disobedience out of ignorance or it's willful disobedience. It's one of the two things. The person may know it's right or wrong or whatever, and they just choose to do it. Or the other one's just like, hey, I didn't know that was wrong. I didn't know shacking up was wrong. Okay, well, let me clue you in. I didn't know hooking up was wrong. That's what they do at my college all the time. And so, yeah, there's that element that there's ignorance and then there's willful disobedience. But either one gets you to the same place. You stumble. No, because when you're disobeying, you're actually, um, sorry, not quenching. Quenching is a ministry thing. You're grieving the Holy Spirit because you're not yielding to Him. And so, yeah, He's not working in you because you're not yielding. He only works in believers who yield to Him. So, yes, Jeff. Right. That's the metaphor. Bingo. And, yes, you got it. A light unto my path. Amen. So that's where you start seeing that metaphor of light and darkness. This is why you're seeing the metaphor of stumbling, right? It's that say Jesus is the light, right? But light represents revelation. Darkness represents non-revelation from God. The revelation from man, revelation from cults, false religions. So only the true revelation from God is a light. It gives you the proper guidance and wisdom. Versus the darkness that the world is in. So good point, Jeff. Very good. The meta, by the way, the light and darkness metaphor is carried from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. When was light created? Very early on, right? But it was created out of the darkness, judgment. And then there was light. Go to the book of Revelation. What does it say about the new Jerusalem? About light and darkness. There's only light. No darkness. But spiritually speaking, that's true. Literally, there will only be light from the Shekinah glory of God. But also in a spiritual application is there is no false doctrine in the New Jerusalem. It is only the pure word and truth from God that resonates in that area or, or, or the rest of the kingdom or the rest of eternity. There is no darkness represent. There is no false teachings anymore. There's no more wrongness and things of that nature. It's only the revelation from God that's there. That's why there's physical light, but also spiritual light the same way. Okay, so we got this on the board. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. And you know this how this passage is misused, right? 
But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were us. And they'll say, see, folks, and this is where, this is where it really gets bad. They'll say, yeah, you know, they left their church, so they're not believers. And that's crazy talk, right? That's not, that's, and, and there's stupid churches that do things like that. But a lot of it is, the, uh, you'll hear it, uh, from whether it's Calvinist pastors or people who have parenting Calvinism. They'll say, see, you know, um, yeah, we just know this friend of ours and we used to be to have this person in our Bible study and this kind of walked away from the Lord. And, and so what does that prove? It proved that they were never saved. See, they interpret this passage as they went out from us that they were never, the idea that they were never saved. That's how they interpret this passage. They're just, the reason they left us is because they're never saved. Is that what the passage is talking about? I think if you start reading 1 John chapter 2, you will realize he is not talking about believers per se. So that's why you can't put this passage on believers. Like, you know, Joe Blow that was in your Bible study, and all of a sudden you never see Joe Blow again. Well, I, I guess he was not saved. No, he could be in prodigal son living. So who is 1 John referring to? Again, context is everything. Verse 18. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist, capital A, okay, is coming. So it refers to the future, the Antichrist is coming. That sets the tone. We're talking about the Antichrist. And then he continues on and says this. Even now, many Antichrists, little a, have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. So he's saying, look, before the big guy gets here, you're going to have a bunch of little guys. And these little guys are going to be Antichrist-like. The spirit of Antichrist is going to work through them. And they're going to be our problem in the last days. And he's saying, little children, we're already there, and you should expect these little Antichrists to come back and forth through the church. And they will. Context, who is he referring to? The little Antichrists, not other believers. Let's continue on. So when he says, they went out from us, who is he referring to? Believers who once believed and left? Or what's the context? The little Antichrists. The they is not referring to other believers who are in your Bible study or at your church. He's referring to these little antichrists, and that's another term for false teachers is what he's referring to. So now, all of a sudden, the they becomes false teachers or antichrists who deny... Orthodox teachings of the Messiah, orthodox teachings of the Bible, they'll deny the deity of Christ, they'll deny the Trinity, all that stuff. For if they had been of us, believed the right doctrine, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest, that they're a false teacher, that none of them were of us. So a classic case in point would be like Charles Taze Russell of the Jehovah Witnesses, or Brigham Young, or Joseph Smith. Those types of people who claim to be Christian but were false teachers and those false teachers denied essentials of Christianity, therefore it puts them in the category of an antichrist. That's who he's referring to. And so all of a sudden, 
Again, I ask that question. Why isn't that read in context? Why do they get to willy-nilly just throw that text around and say, yeah, you know, we used to have a brother here and, and all, you know, he was at our church and now he's at, uh, you know, uh, he went to a different church, you know, and so he, he's not of us anymore. He's probably he's never was saved to begin with. He doesn't understand the doctrines of grace. Why would someone misuse a passage like that? And, 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 and clearly you saw it. It, it first the Antichrist. Oh my goodness. You can't get any more plain than that. Why would they do that to people? Think about that. Yes, but they're doing it for a reason. It's called spiritual abuse. Okay? It's called spiritual abuse. And this is a way of practicing Nicolaitanism. What is Nicolaitanism? It means Nico is lording and, uh, Laitianism is where we refer to laity, laity, lording over the laity. So this passage gives the fuel to the fire for these Calvinist leaders, these Calvinist pastors, to be able to spiritually abuse people, even though it's they're not going to call it spiritual abuse, in order to label other believers in that category of saying, you're lost. How's that any different than the Catholic Church who pronounces anathemas on people? Right? The Catholic Church did this all. The Catholic Church practiced Nicolaitanism to this day. Right? If you're not part of them, they anathematize you. That's in their councils. Trent has that in there. And so it's... Like, all Protestants are anathematized. Did you know that? Ask your Catholic friend, why does your church not believe I'm going to heaven? Why does your church anathematize me and say I'm condemned to hell for believing in faith alone? Ask your Catholic friends that. I wonder what they would say. They probably wouldn't know it. But the the Catholic Church has done this. It's called lording it over. It's called Nicolaitanism in order to wield that kind of power to determine from the human being who's saved and who's not. You see what kind of power that gives the teaching magisterium of the Catholic Church? How how people during the Middle Ages were totally afraid of being condemned to hell, right? Okay, Protestants don't they, they, they do the same thing. Calvin and Luther were notorious for this junk. I mean, if you lived in Geneva, if you lived in Germany during that time of Luther's reign and Calvin's reign, hey man, you could be put to death for not believing in in their doctrines. They're no different than the Catholic Church. So they would use passages like this to say, you're a believer, you're not. And since you're not, then we're, we're going to do whatever we want with you. See, remember, with Calvin and Luther, they had still married the state with the church. Therefore, in church disciplining or in, in practicing executions, they had the full power of the state behind them in their church discipline. This is why they burned people at the stake. This is why Michael Cervantes was drowned. This is why they did what they did, if you didn't go with them. Now, I know I'm getting into church history and stuff, but this is how they misused this passage. They hung on this. And so today, the spiritual abuse is still seen, but people are not getting murdered. But how is the spiritual abuse happening? Well, it's happening in Calvinism, there's no doubt about that. But it also happens in hyper-charismatic movements. Because in hyper-charismatic movements... The kingpin of the church is the pastor, right? You can't touch those guys. Like a Benny Hinn 
or like a Kenneth Copeland, those types of guys, right? They, they lord it over people. And they can use passages like this over people. And that's the dreaded mistake of Nicolaitanism. Now, what does Jesus say about Nicolaitanism? He says, I hate it. I absolutely hate it. Why does he hate it? Because it causes spiritual abuse. It's beating up the sheep with a, a verse that's, that's only relegated to antichrists. So anyway, I hope that clears up everything. I know that's a lot more than wish, probably what you wanted to know. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Anchor Bible Study Podcast. We hope that this lesson is a blessing to you and helps grow you towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has another podcast called Anchor Sunday Sermons, and it's filled with past and present messages in Revelation, Genesis, and Exodus. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear it, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services for the Anchor Sunday Sermons. Support for both of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up, for our redemption draws nearer.